Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Ty Priest, Associate Professor of History and Geography at the University of Iowa about the Defense Production Act and how it has been and is being used in the context of energy development in the United States. I'll ask Ty about the original purpose of the act, how it was used to respond to past energy crises, its role in responding to COVID-19, and the recent invocation of the act by the Biden administration, which is seeking to spur the production and processing of minerals that are critical to the manufacturing of batteries for electric vehicles. There is so much fascinating history in today's episode, so stay with us. Welcome, Ty Priest from the University of Iowa to Resources Radio. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Ty, we are going to talk today about the Defense Production Act, or the DPA. But before we get into details about that act and kind of where it comes from and how it's being used today, can you give us a sense of how you got interested in working on energy or environmental issues, either as a kid or maybe later in life? Sure. Uh, I became interested in natural resource industries when I was a kid growing up in Billings, Montana. I remember in fifth grade, I read a book called The Copper Kings of Montana. It was a popular book directed at young readers about the epic battles uh, between titans of industry over the control of the copper industry in Butte uh, for the material that would wire the world for electricity. So I just started paying attention to how our lives were dependent on things taken out of the earth. And Billings uh, was the center of many different sort of resource industries and a regional headquarters for the oil and coal companies. Uh, there was a ref- oil refinery on the north end of town and a sugar beet refinery on the south where my dad worked. And they were the two most imposing things in the city. And the biggest man-made creation I'd ever seen was this colossal coal-fired power plant down the highway in a town named, uh, appropriately, Coal Strip. And so every morning in the 1970s, when I was in my teen, entering my teens, I saw the subjects of oil, coal, and copper plastered across the front page headlines in my local paper. And in uh, 1975, Great Western Sugar, where my dad was employed, was, was purchased by the oilmen brothers, Bunker and Herbert Hunt. Um, and then the, then the sugar company went bankrupt after the Hunt's disastrous efforts to uh, corner the silver market in 1980. So the, the boom and bust cycles of resource extraction and the effects of resource speculation left kind of a deep imprint on me. And uh, the political economy of natural resources has kind of been an interest of mine ever since. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I um I didn't know that about where you grew up, and I mean you were really in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. I I just remember the coal severance tax. It was a constitutional amendment, uh, you know, that was very hotly debated and contested in 1976. Yeah, um, and so I you know I wrote my first book on the U.S. quest for strategic minerals, uh, you know, which included section on the DPA, the Defense Production Act, and then after moving to Houston in 19. 19- 95, I began studying the history of the oil and gas industry, and that's really been my focus ever since. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, let's talk now about uh, the DPA. So so when was the Defense Production Act enacted, and what was its original purpose? Sure. The Defense Production Act uh, was enacted in September 1950, after the North Korean People's Army invaded South Korea earlier in June, which was quickly followed by a U.S. military invention, intervention to repel the invasion uh, with support from other United Nations members. Um, 
the DPA was modeled on uh, the War Powers Acts of 1941-1942 during World War II, and basically it, it allowed the federal government to prioritize national defense needs over the needs of the private sector and increase the supply of raw materials as it deemed necessary. So in, in 1950, a moment of a uh, heightened crisis in the emerging Cold War between the United States and communist Soviet Union and, and 49 China, the Chinese Communist Revolution had just happened. Uh, 1949 also uh, Soviet Union uh, successfully uh, detonated a nuclear device. Uh, and so the, the DPA granted broad powers uh, to the president and, and President Harry Truman used the DPA to uh, help supply domestic production of steel, heavy industry, machine tools, um, electronics and avionics for a massive military expansion, uh, the blueprint for which had been laid out even before the outbreak of war in Korea by National Security Council Document 68. And so uh, under the DPA, Truman created the Office of Defense Mobilization, which oversaw a whole bunch of different mobilization agencies. And he used Title I of the DPA to prioritize production and supply contracts for the military and, and force private companies uh, to accept them as well as allocate scarce or potentially scarce materials to military suppliers. So Title I is about prioritization and allocation, and that uh, remains part of the Defense Production Act. Today, there were other titles of the act that gave the president a lot of other powers, um, such as imposing wage and price controls and mediating labor disputes and requisitioning equipment uh, and supplies for defense manufacture. Uh, but these titles were not renewed after the war. The other title that sort of remained in the Defense Production Act is Title III. And so Title I and Title III are the ones that are mainly relevant today. And that provides for the, uh, quote, encouragement of exploration, development, and mining of critical and strategic minerals and metals uh, using tools like loans and loan guarantees and purchase commitments. And the Truman administration used Title III to promote new strategic minerals projects abroad um, through a, uh, an initiative called the Defense Materials Procurement Agency. And what this agency did was guarantee purchases of minerals that were being developed um, in, in other countries for the U.S. strategic mineral stockpile uh, through something called a Certificate of Essentiality. And what this did was it made risky, expensive mining projects abroad more financially viable by ensuring that at least a portion of um, a mine's output would be purchased by the U.S. government. And the most important mineral at this point in time was manganese, which is essential ferro alloy for steel making. And in 1949, the Soviet Union was a, was a major source through the client state of Georgia, and the Soviet Union embargoed manganese in 1949, so Truman and the steel industry was desperate to find new sources. Um, and that was that's the subject of my first book, Global Gambits, Big Steel, and the U.S. Quest for Manganese. Huh. That's so interesting. I did not know. Uh, oh, and, and I, should, I should also mention in 1951, incidentally, uh, Truman established the President's Materials Policy Commission to study U.S. raw materials needs and the global supply uh, of them. And it recommended, a, uh, in its report in 1952, the creation of an independent organization to analyze these issues going forward, which led to the creation of your employer resources for the future. <laughs> yes. There you go. <laughs> and uh, yes, yeah, so kind of coming full circle today. Yeah. We should, yeah. Um, we're actually going to do an episode on the um, early days of RFF and the history of RFF. And, oh, and great. That would be fascinating. Yeah. Uh, we'll yeah. dive into that. Yeah. Um, well, let's... Um, 
let's move forward in time a little bit. So, so we have a sense of, you know, when and why the act was established in the first place. How else has it been used in recent decades? We're going to talk about COVID specifically in a couple minutes, but up until COVID, how, like, in what ways has it been used and has it ever been used in an energy context? Well, in the 50s, it's kind of a cautionary tale after the after the Korean armistice, the Eisenhower administration, and, and the DPA was renewed in 1955, it, it, it has a sunset provision, so it has to be renewed every so often. It's been renewed more than 50 times. And it was renewed with many of its original titles stripped out, except for titles one and two, which I spoke about. Um, there was a key difference between Truman and Eisenhower, whereas Truman focused on increasing production of minerals that met the steel industries and military's own specifications and placed control over the stockpile with the military. Eisenhower transferred control to civilian authorities and used the used EPA funds to directly finance the mining of low-grade domestic minerals for which uh, the steelmakers and industry had very little use or, or in quantities far beyond what the industry could ever use. So it became a boondoggle to enrich uh, domestic mining companies who were strong supporters of the Republican Party and who had officials installed in the administration like foxes in the hen house um <laughs> so but you know that chicanery was exposed under uh under kennedy uh, but the the dpa was reauthorized every few years and at which point you know the definition of strategic and critical minerals and national defense has been expanded or broadened over time um johnson administration used it to fund ordnance plants and prioritize defense orders, but um, it was increasingly used for additional purposes, especially during the energy crises of the 60s and 70s. Um, during the first Arab oil embargo in 1967, for example, the Department of Interior used the DPA to refurbish old oil tankers to increase oil shipments. On uh, the second embargo in 73, uh, President Nixon used it to force producers to divert oil from existing delivery contracts uh, to the military. And a year later, in uh, in 74, Nixon used it to um, ensure that the Trans-Alaska Pipeline would get first priority on, on certain materials. And then in, in 1979, after the Iranian Revolution, President Jimmy Carter used the DPA to direct research on making um, synthetic fuels from coal and natural gas. Uh, so, you know, uh, during these years, Congress also passed amendments that explicitly expanded the definition of national defense. The uh, Energy Security Act of 1980 amended Title III to designate energy explicitly as an essential material. And uh, at the same time, around the same time, the newly created Federal Emergency Management Authority, uh, FEMA, uh, was also given responsibility for government-wide coordination um, for DPA authorities. And after Hurricane Andrew, uh, so in 1994, after Hurricane Andrew, Congress amended the DPA to broaden the concept of national defense to include emergency uh, preparedness in the event of, you know, the language in the, in the amendment was a hazard upon the civilian population. Um, so the Department of Defense has routinely used Title I authority prioritization and allocation thousands of times a year to make sure contractors prioritize government orders. But the authority has also been used in other ways by presidents and other federal agencies in the 21st century. Yeah, that's fascinating. So let's, uh, you know, fast forward to COVID-19. Uh, and, and this is when, you know, I first heard of the Defense Production Act, and I imagine many of our listeners did as well. So how have Presidents Trump and Biden used the act in the context of the COVID pandemic? Yeah. Trump was more interested in using the Defense Production Act to um, 
strengthen the U.S. industrial base and and promote the development of rare earth minerals. He he used that um, you know even before COVID um, to uh, you know he issued, issued an executive order to develop a list of critical minerals that would guide the private sector uh, to in exploring and producing minerals at home in order to reduce our dependence on imports. Uh, but then, uh, you know, we reluctantly invoked the DPA to combat the COVID pandemic, uh, creating a, you know, a task force uh, first and then uh, claimed to have used Title I to direct General Motors to get involved in making ventilators, uh, although the company had been already working on such a deal before that. Um, but he, um, he used it sort of rather narrowly. Um, a lot of people thought he, you know, he could have used the authority more aggressively. Um, the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act provided a billion dollars under the DPA to respond to the pandemic. Um, but most of that was money was shifted to military contractors. Uh, Trump used the DPA to prohibit uh, 3M and its subsidiaries from exporting N95 masks and even used it to declare meat processing plants critical infrastructure. Uh, to ensure that they stayed open. Uh, but a lot of people thought he, sh he could have used the DPA more to spur production, especially uh, Title III authority, which was used a handful of times under Trump. And then when Biden came into office, he made I think he made greater use of it uh, using loans and loan guarantees and purchases to spur the production of vaccines and surgical gloves and test kits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when the federal government issued an advanced market commitment to buy, you know, millions and, and maybe hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines for pharmaceutical companies that could develop them, were they using the DPA to to take that act or were they using some other authority? I believe they were using, yeah, Title Three of the DPA. Okay. Super interesting. Um, so let's talk now about how the DPA has been uh, invoked just in the last couple of weeks. So the Biden administration recently announced that it would use the act to create stronger domestic supply chains for critical minerals. Right? It sounds like this has you know, happened before, at least uh, to some extent, under President Trump. Um, so these critical minerals uh, that the Biden administration is focused on, I believe they are you know, key inputs to the production of batteries and other clean energy technologies. So I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of like nuts and bolts. How does this actually work? Like what are the specific tools that the federal government will be using to encourage or incentivize the creation of, let's say, mines or processing plants or other infrastructure that's needed to uh, produce these materials? Yeah. So from my read, uh, you know, earlier this month, uh, Senators Barbara Mikowski and um, Joe Manchin of the Senate Energy and Natural Resource Committee Sort of prevailed on Biden to uh, order the Department of Defense to consider at least five metals, lithium, cobalt, graphite, nickel, and manganese, um, which are the key ones that are in the cathodes of uh, lithium ion electric vehicle batteries, uh, to make them essential to national security under the Defense Production Act. Um, the prices for lithium, cobalt, and nickel in particular have reached stratospheric levels in the last year. Um, and uh, from my understanding, the order doesn't explicitly fund more mining, but it calls for paying for feasibility studies to determine possible mines viability or to finance co-production and byproduct um, extraction from mines that, you know, are typically yielding other minerals. I think so nickel and cobalt are often found together. Um, and the order, you know, 
appears to be the first use of the DPA to obtain supplies for clean energy purposes. And, and uh, as, as you mentioned, the four minerals specified are ones used in lithium ion battery cathodes. So it's not clear what the Biden administration tends to do beyond this. Um, it's kind of, it seems like a signal for investments in this supply chain. The administration could certainly use both Title I and Title III authority if it was funded at a high enough level to encourage the mining and processing of these minerals, you know, using loans and loan guarantees and purchase commitments. China dominates the processing of such minerals and the manufacturing of batteries from them. And, and the United States is 100% dependent on imports in manganese and graphite. There's a small amount of nickel and cobalt mined in this country, and I think one lithium mine. Um, but the United States, you know, I doubt will ever be even close to self-sufficient in any of these minerals, but it, but it, um, the DPA could be used like it was during the Korean War to promote the development of new mines overseas that are sort of in countries that are, you know, closer allies to the United States than China. So, yeah, I think it's it's sort of the Biden administration trying to feel its way forward in reducing our complete dependence on China for the supply chains for the, these minerals and 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 the processing of these minerals. Right. That's really interesting. The um, one of the questions I had, you sort of alluded to it. Um, is are there dollar figures attached to the invocation of this act, or would it require? I think right now that there's a seven hundred and fifty million dollars in you know standing authority under the DPA, but I think Congress has to appropriate specific levels of funding for it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, there. We've done a little bit of talking on this show about, you know, mining projects in the United States and processing projects in the United States and how challenging, you know, they can be uh, from a siting perspective and a public, you know, opposition perspective. But it's really interesting to hear that, you know, these funds can be used to, to support mining that happens uh, outside of the United States as well as processing. Of well, and this was very controversial in the 1940s and 1950s. The domestic mining industry really fought hard to have the stockpiling program oriented toward domestic mines when the industry preferred much higher grade, you know, less costly mines overseas. Um, so not, I don't, you know, we're never going to have a manganese industry in the United States. We tried in the 50s and it just didn't work. Um, <laughs> but I'm not sure about, and probably not with nickel, but, um, you know, there, there is appears to be significant lithium deposits and there are other lithium deposits in the western hemisphere in south america um there's also been discussion about replacing cobalt you know i think like 65 percent of which is mined in the congo under really terrible social and environmental conditions uh, replacing cobalt with manganese in these batteries i think elon musk has even mentioned it but uh, i i haven't seen too much follow-up on some stories that were run in the last couple of years about that that's really interesting. So uh, certainly, you know, topics that we're going to be following for years, if not decades to come, it's going to be really fascinating. So um, a related question, you mentioned self-sufficiency a minute ago. Uh, as, as listeners of our show know, there's a long history in the U.S. of policymakers seeking to make the U.S. quote unquote energy independent, um, which, you know, as, as we both know, Ty, you know, that that's not an achievable goal from a policy perspective, but it is a nice bumper sticker, I suppose. But uh you know, do you see this focus on domestic mining and processing as part of that kind of maybe Sisyphean struggle for energy independence, or is it more modest in its aims? 
Didn't you just publish an essay in Resources, Daniel, <laughs> entitled "Can We Please Stop Talking About Energy Independence?" <laughs> Indeed, and now here I am talking about energy independence. I, I am ashamed of myself. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's it. You know, it, it's possibly a path down the road to reduced reliance on oil. Certainly, if we, you know, can affect a rapid transition to you know electric vehicles. And thus greater energy security. And, you know, I, I prefer like energy security to energy independence, uh, but it's a long road. Um, you know, we're, I think what Biden administration is trying to do is reduce the almost complete reliance on China for the production of electric vehicle batteries. Um, I think the United States is never going to be uh, independent in these minerals. I think the challenge is to create a competitive mineral processing and battery manufacturing industry. Um, which is, you know, requires a technological commitment, a commitment of financial capital and human capital. But, but yeah, it's a, you know, I, I think politicians and the American public, you know, in that whole geopolitical world, would prefer to be less reliant on imported oil. I, I think, you know, um, whether you want to call that independence. Or what? Uh, not we're not going to be uh, insulated from global market forces and that shape the price of oil, and we're we're now a, a big oil and gas exporter. So yeah, um, but I think we're just getting started on a very long path to try to reduce our reliance on oil in general. Yeah, yeah, and I think we you know the, we have a pretty clear understanding about what some of the geopolitical benefits of reducing our dependence on oil you know, will be. Um, but it seems to me that there are, you know, many more questions than there are answers about the geopolitical implications of these kind of critical mineral supply chains that are only going to grow over time. Yes. Yeah. And I think that just the huge leaps in prices for these minerals have, you know, EV manufacturers and, and auto companies very concerned at this point. Yeah. So, Ty, I want to ask you one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, um, which is about um, the potential application of the DPA to, you know, a broader set of clean energy activities. So there's been legislation proposed fairly recently by uh, some congressional Democrats that I believe would uh, dedicate $100 billion specifically for clean energy manufacturing facilities here in the United States. Um, I'm curious about your view on whether that type of investment would be consistent with past uses of the Defense Production Act, uh, or whether it would be maybe outside the norm? It's interesting. I think it's outside the norm. Uh, You know, the bill I looked at was sponsored by Representatives Jason Crow and Cori Bush and Bernie Sanders, which would designate energy efficiency and renewable energy systems and technologies as strategic and critical materials, and, and it proposes using that Title III authority to establish an uh, industrial base and manufacturing capabilities for such systems. I don't think it's not, I don't think it's really what the DPA was intended to do, which was to get the United States through temporary national defense emergencies, but the, you know, it has been used for an expanding set of purposes over time. I would say $100 billion is a lot of money to give to a president to use as he or she wishes the DPA really gives the president a lot of flexibility in how to spend that money, and I doubt Congress would provide this level of money under the DPA. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of mention of electric heat pumps in that bill, but it seems to me electric heat pumps are being adopted rather rapidly 
you know, they, they don't need a lot of help, especially in the South. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there may be better ways to do this, to promote this and, and things that are being done without government getting so directly involved. Um, you know, I personally would maybe think that that level of funding might be better for government sponsored research and development. Right. Yeah. Something we've talked about a lot on the show, the sort of relative role of government in R&D versus deployment versus, you know, really scaling up industries. Yeah. Not really my, you know, area of research expertise, but uh, it's it's an interesting proposal. Yeah. And at least, you know, it's it's calling attention to, yeah, if we're going to use the DPA for all these various things. Why can't we use it for, you know, our priorities, <laughs> you know, or, or these priorities? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it sort of falls into that line of thinking of, you know, you mentioned the DPA being intended for use for kind of temporary emergencies. And, you know, I think some would argue that uh, the climate crisis is a, an emergency that requires, you know, sort of immediate investment. And so that may be part of the rationale there. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Ty, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned a ton, as I always do when I speak with you. And um, let's go now to our last segment, which is called Top of the Stack, where we ask you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard uh, that you think our listeners would enjoy. So, uh, Ty, what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? My wife complains that I have too many stacks. <laughs> uh, so I have a lot of books stacked up, but there are two that I'm reading now and enjoying and I think are relevant to what's happening in the world. One is uh, Jay Hake's Energy Crises, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Hard Choices in the 1970s. I, I read it as a reviewer for the press, Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma Press. And it came out in 2021. Um, and I'm reading it again because it's just so interesting and instructive about, you know, how politicians and administrations, you know, uh, confront the energy problems and how difficult they are. Uh, Jay was the director of the Energy Information Administration under Clinton and was the director of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. I think it's a fantastic book. Um, and if you think you know what, what happened in the 1970s, you need to read, read Jay's book. Um, the, the other one is uh, Thane Gustafson's uh, The Bridge, Natural Gas in a Redivided Europe which came out in 2020. Um, but if you want to know how Europe got so dependent on Russian gas imports, this is the book for you. Fascinating. So two books that are very much uh, in line with the, the crisis we find ourselves in at the moment. Yeah, yeah. With energy. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Ty, for those recommendations. And thank you for coming on the show uh, and uh, telling us uh, all about the Defense Production Act, which is new to many of our lexicons, but we're quickly getting familiar with it. Uh, so we just really appreciate your time and your expertise. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Daniel. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, 
with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode. <laughs>